All right. Well, who is your hero? That's my question for you this morning. Who is your hero? Who are some of those people in your life who you, you know, look up to or, or would say, you know, man, I would like to be like him someday. I would like to be like her one day. Who are those people that inspire you? Whoever it is that you have in your mind, um, they were probably somebody who accomplished something great with their life. Um, probably, probably someone who uh, did some things that were, that were, you know, bordering on incredible. They're probably someone who was different from the crowd. They were likely someone who overcame great obstacles in life. And history has shown us that these people that we ha- admire have a common string that runs through their life. They were motivated by a vision of a better place, of a better future. Martin Luther King Jr. had his dream of a racially integrated America. Gandhi envisioned a free and united India. Whoever your hero is, there, there is something, some cause, some vision that propelled them forward, that, that, that forced them that, to just keep going, that caused them to live the incredible life that they did live. One of my heroes is the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an ancient world uh, street preacher, and uh, I love reading about him. And, and as I do, I, th- I think, how did he do it? How did he just keep preaching and preaching to a bunch of people who weren't really interested in what he had to say? How did he keep going when people would just walk by him, ignoring what he was, what he was saying? How did, how did he do it when they didn't just ignore what he had to say, but they began to ridicule him as he preached? Another hero of mine is Hudson Taylor. Uh, if you know Hudson Taylor, he was uh, this missionary who spent 51 years serving in China. Um, and he, uh, he lived about 100 years ago, and, and this was before China was a world, you know, major world power. Um, you know, now it kind of feels like a safe place to go, and um, for some people it feels like a safe place to go. But, uh, but you know, the, Taylor didn't just go to Beijing or Shanghai. He went deep into the rural areas of China. And uh, he, he recruited missionaries, he started schools, he campaigned against the opium trade, he started churches, he dedicated his life to service in one of the more dangerous and remote places in the world. He served there 51 years total, serving as a missionary. A lot of people like to look at him and think of, think of him as a modern-day Paul. And I think it's natural to ask the question, how did these guys make it over the long haul? 51 years. They must have a dream, a vision, a future reality that is compelling them to give up their lives for these humble, difficult, life-threatening tasks. What was it that kept pushing them forward? Well, the Apostle Apostle Paul was frequently telling us about what did it for him, his own vision. And he shares this more personally in uh, his second letter um, to Timothy. This is what he writes. I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time of my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but, to, but also to all who have longed for his appearing." It was there in Paul's life, it was there in Hudson Taylor's life, it was there in Jeremiah's life. The anticipation of life in heaven with God. A day when when we would be reunited with God and rewarded for our work. 
For the incredible Christians in our lives, there's this one event that becomes the the driving focus of their lives, and that event is the return of Christ to earth. Jesus promised his disciples that he would return, and that when he did, he was going to be bringing a reward with him. You might be looking at our promise today, which is the promise of Christ's return, and, uh, and you're probably, you may be thinking, you know, yeah, I, I already know about that already. Yeah, Jesus is coming back. Yeah, I heard about that. I listened to this TV preacher on Daystar. Yeah, he told me all about it. I know about the tribulation period, the rapture. Yes, yeah, I watched the Left Behind series. I know about these things. Yes, yes. So, so, so a lot of people, we, we know about this. A lot of people, even people who aren't Christians, know about the return of Christ. And we may already know about it, but today I want us to see what mammoth implications it has for the way we live. If you really believe that Jesus is coming back, if you really believe it, you're going to live differently. You won't approach each day the same way as the person who thinks that they have many more years left um, to live on this earth. You will live differently. First off, I want to go over some facts concerning the uh, return of Jesus. So there's a lot of misinformation about there about his return. And so um, we've got to clear these things up before we talk about the implications of his return. Harold Camping. It was about two years ago when he was getting a lot of press for predicting that the world was going to end on October 2011. Um, you guys probably remember it wasn't, wasn't that long ago. And I, I will be honest with you. Harold Camping. I just do not know how people like this get a following. I just, I don't get it. Here's what's confusing about me. The, the, the Bible explicitly say, states that um, no one knows when Jesus is coming back. So why would you think that Harold knows? I, I, I mean, why would you think that he knows? Nobody knows this. And this is, what, this is what Jesus explicitly says in Matthew 24. And Jesus, speaking of his return, um, says this, But about that day or hour, no one knows... Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. No one knows. How about that? Jesus doesn't even know. Try to wrap your brain around that. Jesus doesn't even know. Jesus is very clear. No one knows. No one knows. Adding to this, Matthew 24 explains that it will be a surprise. It's not going to be like we're, you know, sitting around knowing that it's the month of October and saying, you know, it's any day now. It's any day now. It is going to be a surprise. Jesus says in verse 44, The Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. It is true, however, that will be signs that we are getting closer. All throughout Matthew 24, Jesus gives us several signs that we would be getting closer to his return. He mentioned things like the gospel being preached to the entire world. He mentioned things like the, the, these famines and earthquakes and you know, signs and wonders in the sky. And there's this increasing persecution of Christians. We also see that. And there's all, the, there's all these uh, prophetic passages, and there's Jesus' own teaching that tell us these, these signs. So there will be signs that we are getting closer. Here's another fact. Jesus will not be reincarnated. He's not going to come back in the body of a little boy. Yes, it was very awesome when he did that the first time. Yes, it was awesome. But it was a one-time thing. 
What's interesting is that Jesus even predicted that we would be thinking this. This would be one of our ideas, that he would come back, that we, he would come back this way. And he says this, Watch out that no one deceives you, because for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. And he goes on, As lightning that comes from the east is visible in the west, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with, great, with power and great glory. The first time he came, he came meekly, born as a baby. When he comes the second time, he will be coming on the clouds of heaven with great power. No one's going to wonder whether he's, he's come back. Everyone will know that it is happening. If you've been listening to Christian radio or Christian TV for any length of time, um, you've probably listened to someone who has had a lot to say about the, uh, the last days and the events leading up to the end of the world. And there's a lot of prophetic material, as we've talked about, that, uh, that talks about the end of the world. And it's all very, very interesting stuff, very interesting. But here's an important encouragement that I want to give you. Please recognize that the events leading up to Christ's return are not nearly as important as if you are ready for his return. You can know all the premillennial, the amillennial, the post-trib, the pre-trib. You can know all the options, but if you are not ready for his return, you've been wasting your time learning about these things. And so that's what I want us to be focusing on today. I want us to focus on how the anticipation of the return of Christ the men of, how it will just change the way we live. The, the men and women of God who, who lived incredible lives, who we respect, they did so because they were looking forward to the return of Christ. They didn't just agree that he would return. They lived their life like Jesus was really coming back. When you live every day with the all-consuming awareness that Jesus is going to return and that he could be returning any moment now, you're going to live differently. And I think there's four, th- four key things um, that you will be able to do if you live every day with the thought of his return. The first thing you will be able to do if you believe that Jesus is really coming back is you will be able to stand firm and not give up in the midst of suffering. You know, I've, I've realized that my uh, body is wasting away. Um, uh, two weeks ago, I'm, I'm going out to mow my lawn um, which, by the way, is, has not, had not been mowed uh, since I moved in, um, which, uh, which is kind of embarrassing. But then uh, I, I was going out to mow my lawn, and, you know, I primed the pump, and uh, I was pulling on the uh, string to the mower. And uh, I hadn't primed the pump enough, uh, but I didn't know that at the time. And so I was, I was pulling on the string, and I just kept pulling harder and harder, and I just thought... You know, if I just pull hard enough. Um, and, uh, and then eventually I was like, ooh, that hurt. And, and, uh, and everything was okay. You know, I primed it a little bit more, and then, you know, boom, all, all of a sudden it starts up. Um, and everything was fine until the next morning. And uh, I, just, oh my, I just could not believe how much pain I was in, like right here on my shoulder, just 
a, a ton of pain, and uh, I couldn't get out. I, I couldn't get up out of bed. I had to ask my pregnant wife to help me get out of bed in the morning. And, and, uh, and then for the rest of the week, I was walking around like this, you know? And, and I, I, I just have never had this happen to me before. I was walking around like this, and when someone would call me, I'd have to go like this. And, uh, and so it was, it, was, it, was, it was miserable. For the first week, I was just totally miserable as I uh, was dealing with this injury. And I knew what had happened because these sort of things have been happening more to me li- lately. And uh, I pulled, I've been pulling more muscles in the past two years than I have in my entire life. Um, it's kind of this weird thing. And, and, and I've realized my body is wasting away. It's wasting away. <laughs> and so uh, I tell you, it got me thinking about how uh, you older people keep telling me that this is going to keep happening more and more, right? Um, that, that this is uh, my lot in life. Well... <laughs> well, I think this is not the way it should be. Um, <laughs> I think this is not the way it should be. And really, you know, it, it, it isn't the way it should be. It isn't. We, li- we live in a world of suffering and brokenness. And uh, to, to be serious, you know, th- things shouldn't be this way. And this whole injury experience reminded me um, how this world is messed up, and it also reminded me of what it's like for many of you who, uh, who deal with much worse things, chronic illnesses, and uh, things that, that weigh on you and oppress you um, with your health. And uh, day after day, you deal with the same problem. You have to watch what you eat. You have to watch how you move. Um, you you go have these repeated doctor visits, and, uh, and it's just no answers. It can be oppressive. We know that there's something wrong with this world. It's not supposed to be this way. And it's not just our bodies that are messed up. Our relationships, our communities, our governments, everything in this world is broken. It's not the way it should be. And when we look forward to the return of Christ, we are looking forward to a day when these things are lifted. When Jesus returns, he will come in power, and he will deliver justice for those who have been treated unjustly. He will right what has been wrong. On the day of his return, he's going to bring healing in his wings for those who suffer. And not temporary healing, not uh, pain management, utterly complete and permanent healing. On that day, all that we have longed for and cried over and grieved over will be made whole. We will be at home with God. And of course, uh, even though this is our future, sometimes it's hard to see it. Sometimes all we can see are the mountains of difficulty that are around us. Sometimes the only thing we can feel is the weight of the suffering that we are experiencing right now, sadness. And in these moments of difficulty, we are tempted to give up. Now, uh, I recognize we often talk about, you know, giving up in the midst of difficulty and how, you know, we're not supposed to do that, but it's hard sometimes. And I think we, it's kind of confusing. What do we mean by giving up? Well, I want to give you a glimpse into uh, what I mean when I say giving up. The first one is uh, not trying. You've been working on something in your marriage, and you've been working and working and working. But no matter how much you try, how many approaches you try, you still haven't found peace in your marriage. The other person keeps bringing it up. 
And you feel like you're doing the best you can, but it's just never good enough. And your best efforts just aren't working. They're not good enough. And so you think, if my best efforts aren't uh, good enough for this person, why bother trying? And so sometimes we are tempted with the option of not trying. And I, w- I would say that is giving up. If it's a situation, you know, some, it's a situ- you know, maybe you're in a situation that's deeply frustrating, I think there's also this temptation to just verbally assault the person. I think that's a real temptation. Give them a piece of your mind. Let them have it. Abram, uh, Abram once went on uh, this tirade, um, and he, afterwards, um, he shared something that I thought was uh, really perceptive. Um, he was letting us have it, and afterwards he said, I just wanted you to know how frustrated I was. It's a valid desire. He was hurt, and he wanted, us to, sh- he wanted to show us how hurt he was. But to hurt someone in order to show them how hurt you are is not the healthy way to go about it. There are better ways to show that you are hurt. Laying patience aside and letting your frustration come out in the form of rage um, or hurtful anger, this is giving up. Um, I think we're also sometimes tempted to give up by escaping into a sinful behavior. I think that probably the most popular one is alcohol. Um, and I'm not saying alcohol is sin, but getting drunk to escape our problems is a form of giving up. Instead of living in the midst of suffering, instead of continuing to do our best in that place, we try to get our mind off the problem with something that, uh, that is only a temporary comfort. Um, and it also comes with uh, harmful effects on our lives if we're getting drunk. If you want to overcome the temptation to give up in the midst of suffering... If you want to be able to do that, you need to to look to a place, um, the place of real comfort, which is heaven. And when you have the hope of heaven and and the return of Christ in your mind and all the healing that he will bring right before you, you're going to be able to keep going in the midst of suffering. I think one of the greatest examples of this is a, is, are those slave songs that came out of uh, those many periods of, of slavery um, in the U.S. Those African-American spirituals, I don't know if you've ever taken a look, they are rich with talk of heaven. And I love singing them because uh, they're, they're all about heaven. And, what, and what I, when I, when I, whenever I sing these, I can envision those workers in those fields in slavery working and working, no hope. And singing these songs. And really, for many of them, their only hope was the hope of heaven. And it was what allowed them to keep pressing on when uh, giving up looked real tempting. You know that song, uh, Swing Low, Sweet Chariot? What's the chariot? What's the chariot? You, you know what that chariot is, right? It is, the, it is the chariot of God. It is the chariot of G- that Jesus is going to ride in on when he comes at the last day. That's what the chariot is. And when they sang, swing low, sweet chariot, coming forward to carry me home, they were looking forward to heaven. They were looking forward to the return of Jesus. And it goes, you know, if you get there before I do, coming forward to carry me home. Tell all my friends I'm coming too, coming forward to carry me home. They sang these songs, and they were able to stand strong in the midst of heavy, heavy oppression. And they were able to do it without giving up. You can stand firm in the midst of incredible suffering when you are living 
with the promise of Christ's return. You can press on when the odds are against you. If you believe that Jesus is coming back, you can survive the most oppressive situations. You can. You can and you must because Jesus is coming back. The second thing you will be able to do if you believe that Jesus is really coming back is that you will be able to care about things that really matter. Have you ever been working on something and, uh, and things are just going wrong left and right and you just throw your hands up in the air and think, why do I even care? Why, why bother with this? Why do I care that I haven't mowed my entire lawn since I moved in? <laughs> why, do I, why do I care that my, my leaves are piling up and could become a, a big, soft, cushy bed for a dinosaur? Why do I care? Why do I care? Why bother? What does it really matter? Sometimes uh, there are things, there are reasons these things actually do matter. Um, but if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle to care about things, um, to care about the right things in life. Sometimes we care about things that just really don't matter. Sometimes we care about them so much that we center our lives around the pursuit of something that doesn't matter. And here are some of the things that really don't matter when you've got an eternal perspective. Money. Popularity. Having a big house. Having nice things. Having an easy life. I've got to be honest with you, as much as I want to renounce the desire um, for these things, as much as I, I try to put them in their proper perspective in life, I struggle with caring about these things more than I should. I struggle with wanting an easy life. You know, to give you an example, when we moved into our house a couple months ago, I made a very, very important discovery. Our house came with a laundry chute built in. And, uh, and I was just really excited about this. There's this little door in the hallway. It's about this big. And, uh, and um, it's got a chute, sheet metal. It goes down to the basement. And uh, it, it didn't quite open up into the right spot. And so I, I got some sheet metal and, you know, retrofitted it so that it, it feeds right up on top of the dryer. And we put a basket there. And uh, I was just really excited about this, a, a laundry chute. And so I, I quick ran upstairs once I got it all set up. And I got a sock and I threw it down. <laughs> and and I, went, I ran downstairs and I was like, it went in the laundry basket. Oh my goodness. And, and I was just so excited about this. And I cannot tell you how excited about this. I, I, was, I kept throwing things down my laundry chute to see what sort of things it could handle. And my laundry chute, my little laundry chute can handle a large blanket. A large blanket. Isn't that awesome? I was very excited um, that I would no longer have to do the 10 steps that it takes to get down to the basement in order to, uh, to take my laundry down there. I care about having an easy life. And, and, I, and I just, I, I do. I, I struggle with caring about things that just really don't matter that much. The laundry chute is a silly example, but I think we really do struggle to care about these things more than we should. Money popularity, having a big house, having nice things, being able to take it easy in life. If you've been uh, following along with the Bible reading plan, um, you've probably noticed a theme in Ecclesiastes. This is one of those themes. And the writer keeps talking about how so many of the things in life that we pursue are meaningless. And he writes, What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? 
All their days are wor- all their all their days their work is grief and pain, and even at the at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. The truth is, these things, though we desire them so much, they are empty. They do not satisfy like we think they will satisfy. If you remember uh, Britney Spears, um, she sang this one song called Lucky. And uh, it was very interesting to listen to the song. I think it was an eye-opener into her life. Um, And I think the lyrics are something that a lot of people can relate to. And the chorus goes like this. They're talking about this girl um, named Lucky who is, um, you know, symbolic for Britney herself. And they say, isn't she lovely, this Hollywood girl? And they say, she's so lucky, she's a star. But she cry, cry, cries in her lonely heart, thinking, if there's nothing missing in my life, then why do these tears come at night? Brittany had everything that most people dream of. Money, popularity, a big house, nice things, attention. But yet, as she reveals in this song, she felt empty. She longed for something else. The temptation to desire things that don't matter is, I think, the greatest danger for people who have been Christians for a long time. It's really a danger for everybody, but for people who have been Christians for, for a long time, it's one of those things that kind of slip past your radar, you know, your radar of, of uh, what's going on in your life. You may catch dishonesty in your life. You may catch that. You see that. You may catch false teaching. Um, you may see how, how you need to be reconciled with somebody in your relationships. You see those things. But it's hard to see how possessions are starting to become too important in our lives. In the parable of the sower, Jesus says there are three reasons why um, God's truth might not bear fruit in our lives. The first is if we can't hear it in the first place. The second is if difficulty and persecution make it too difficult for us to live these things out. But the the third is the most scary um, to me of, of all of them. Jesus says this, The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. This is the danger of pursuing things that just really aren't important. What God wants to do in me and through me might be crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth. And for those of you who have been Christians for a while, the biggest danger in your spiritual walk is not that you'll fall away from the faith. It's not that you'll be misled by some cult. It's not that you'll be caught in some scandal. It's that you'll be neutered of your effectiveness as a Christian. We are tempted to focus on things that just don't matter. But here's what really matters. People. Not money, not houses, not things. People. God tells us that he places great value in every person. Even if we can't see value in them. God explains that in Genesis that he created us in his image. After the likeness of God, we're a reflection of who he is. And he, cre- he places great value in each one of us. People are the one thing in the world that we know for sure will last forever. When you invest in people instead of things like Google or real estate, you are making an investment that will last forever. Forever. When you invest in people instead of your house, You can know that your investment will never grow old and wear out. Never. 
when you share about God with someone, you are giving them a gift that makes uh, philanthropy look like pocket change. Mom and dads, when you invest in your kids, your investment will have exponential impact. This is what it's like to set your eyes on things eternal. Colossians 3 says this, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you died to this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. Is Christ your life? Or are these things your life? Let's be honest here. These things are tempting. They have a strong allure. A strong allure. I don't want to live my life for these things, but it is tempting. I, don't, I want to live my life for the kingdom of God. I want to get to heaven and, and you know, run into some people who were there because I cared about them and reached out to them. I want to talk to people in heaven who say, hey, man, you changed my life forever. That's what I want. I want to, I want to get to see God, how, see God show me how people's lives would be different if I hadn't uh, cared for them, cared about them. This is what I want. But yet sometimes I do care about things that just don't matter. I struggle with this. Does, it, does anyone else here struggle with caring about the things of this world? Do you raise your hand. If you, if you just can recognize, yeah, no, no, no pressure, just... We struggle with this. And I have a hard verse for us this morning. Here's a hard verse. 1 John chapter 2. Do not love this world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but from this world. And so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and make this even, this is painful. I'm going to make this even more painful. Um, house worship. I think we struggle with this. Uh, many, many of you guys know that I, Katie and I recently bought a house. And uh, it's a nice house. It's over by uh, Watkins High School over here. And uh, there's a lot of things that people are afraid of when they buy a new house. Um, they're afraid of the mortgage. Um, they're afraid of the co- costly repairs. Um, they're afraid of buying a home that has some sort of major problem with it. And uh, these things, I'll be honest with you, these things were not my fear. I was not afraid of those things. My greatest fear was not the mortgage. It wasn't buying a lemon. My greatest fear was that I would become a house worshiper. That I would begin to put too much time and value into having a nice house to the detriment of other areas of my life. I'll be honest with you. I was, I was afraid of it. And I just keep thinking that too many lives are, all, are on the line to be spending a lot of time on my house. It's, it's just not that important in the grander scheme of things. But I know that this is a desire I struggle with. I mean, I'm not just saying this. I really do struggle with this. Now, don't get me wrong. You want to make your house functional. You want to make it nice. And I'm not going to tell you where to draw the line on this. Because it, at, at, at the core here, this is a heart issue. It is a heart issue. I can't tell you that this is putting too much time into your house and this is reasonable. I'm not going to do that. But I do want to tell you this. Beware. Beware. The love of these things is the root of all kinds of evil. The worries of this life and the lure of wealth will choke your life, and there will be regret over these things. I already have regret over these things. 
And my point here is not for us to go around pointing fingers at other people's houses. The point here is for you to look inside your heart. Look in your heart. Do you struggle with these things? Are you struggling to draw that line in a place that pleases God? You should be struggling at this. I think it's something we, we all struggle with, um, especially in America. I don't want to spend my life making the perfect house perfect. And when you die and go to heaven, God is going to ask you um, what you have to show for your life. And you're going to watch all these people come across the stage, and they're going to share um, about uh, the impact that they've had on people. And you're not going to want to say to God, I have a really nice house. Houses just don't last as long as people do. Now, I recognize that I've just given you something really tough. How do we ignore the temptation to love these things? They are so captivating. They consume our time, even if we don't want them to, right? You must live in a house. You must have, handle money. You must have things. They're always grabbing at our attention, aren't they? When you believe that Jesus is coming back, you can put these things in proper perspective. You see, a heavenly perspective helps me realign my priorities in life and where, where, what I think about um, when I think about my time and money. I can envision what it will be like in heaven. I can envision myself looking back on the decisions I make right now and, uh, and, and thinking, looking back on, on myself and thinking, I, I wish I would have been more focused on thinking about the things of God. I wish I would have been more bold and risky. I just didn't have enough faith at the time. Some of the decisions I make now, I'll be ashamed of. There will be some regret. Where the gaze of our soul is fixed matters. If I'm always looking at my neighbor's this or that, I'm I'm always going to be thinking about the toys that I don't have. Do you remember being a child and thinking everyone else had uh, better stuff than you did? Remember that, being a, being a kid? And it's like, you know, maybe, maybe you're an adult and you still feel that way. I don't know. Um, but it's like, uh, when, I, when I, I had this friend growing up, and um, sometimes we would, you know, we'd be going over to his house, and we would debate about these things. And I'd say, Sam, your house is so much better than mine is. You've got this and this and this. And he'd say, no way, Ben. I like your house much better. You've got this and this and this. If we are fixing our, the eyes of our soul on the things of this world, we're always going to be thinking about the things we don't have. But if our eyes are looking towards heaven, if we are waiting for, for the return of Jesus, we're going to realize we already have everything. We just don't have it now. And we'll be able to look at these possessions and say, who cares? I don't get to keep them anyways. They're all just temporary. When you live every day with the perspective that Jesus could be right around the corner, you can say that these things just aren't that important in light of eternity. You can do that. You can overcome that temptation. You can center your life around the kingdom of God. If you are living every day believing that Jesus is coming back, you can care about things that really matter. You can. You can and you should. Because Jesus really is coming back. The third thing you will be able to do if you believe that Jesus is really coming back is that you will be able to live with joy right now. And the reason you'll be able to live with joy right now is because you will know that you have a party coming. And I'm not saying, you know, party in a figurative sense, you know, heaven's going to be like a party. Um, You have an actual party. 
uh, to look forward to. A lot of people refer to this party as the Messianic Banquet, the Messiah's Banquet. And there's multiple prophecies about a party or a banquet that will begin the reign of the Messiah when he returns. This is what Isaiah says about it. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. Then he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. I'm looking forward to it. In the book of Revelations 2, it talks about this wedding feast. And Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, and he describes it like this wedding feast or this banquet. This is part of the promise of Christ's return. When he returns, there's going to be a party like no other. We're going to reunite with all those people we've been missing. The food is going to be awesome. And we're going to get to taste all these things that we've never uh, tasted before. We'll get to see Abraham and Moses and all those people that we've read about for all these years. I'm going to get to high-five Moses. How cool is that? I'm, I'm going to get to joke around with Isaiah. I'm going to be like, Isaiah, what were you thinking walking around naked for three years? What were you thinking, man? And, uh, and we're just going to get to joke around. And, of course, the best part of all will be that Jesus will be there. We'll get to give him a hug, and he's going to, he's going to know us by name, you know. He's going to be like, hey, Jim, good to see you, man. We've been waiting for you. Welcome to the party. And he's going to be like, hey, listen, we're going to, we're going to mingle for about half an hour, and then we're going to start the meal. It's going to be a real party. It's going to be a real party. That's what it's going to be like. Some people think that heaven is all about worship, and it's going to be all singing. And that's not true. That's based on a limited view of worship. There's going to be singing, there's going to be dancing, there's going to be eating and drinking. There is going to be a party, a real party. And here's the thing I've realized. God created us as people who um, like to have something to look forward to. You know, kids like to look forward to, to the, all the presents at Christmas time. We look forward to hanging out with our family and our friends. We look forward to these things. And God gave you a party to look forward to. And when I think about this party, I get excited. There is joy in the anticipation of that party. Many people think that the Christian life is all about, you know, avoiding this and avoiding that and all these rules. And, uh, you know, I take a different perspective. I think the Christian life is about joyful parties, celebrating freedom. Avoiding this and avoiding that is just um, simply a pathway to greater freedom and, uh, and peace. And, I, I, you know, I went with uh, some friends to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Uh, if you've ever been to an, an AA meeting, just a really awesome, cool thing, especially when they're celebrating their uh, one year of sobriety. Um, and uh, our friend of ours was celebrating one year of sobriety, and so we went to uh, support him. And I, I got to see all these people walk across the stage. And uh, you know that they had worked so hard for that one year. They talked about the journey, and they thanked their, their uh, sponsor. And uh, it's just a really wonderful time. And, and we had a reason to celebrate, and we did celebrate. Now, um, we could look at, someone could look at these people and say, you know, look at all the alcohol they had to avoid. They must have a miserable life. But of course, that doesn't make any sense, does it? And they wouldn't, it wouldn't make any sense to them. The same is true of the Christian life. Sure, we have to avoid some things. But the freedom and the celebration of the freedom 
is the end result, and it's totally worth it. When we get to heaven, we will have a lot to celebrate. And here's another thing. You should know that Jesus is waiting for you before he starts that party. This party has not started yet. And in, in, uh, he says explicitly at the Last Supper, I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of heaven. You've got a party coming and Jesus is waiting for you to get there. Since you've got a party coming, why not live in joy, joyful anticipation of that party? If it's always on your mind, it will be a reason to have joy. You can have joy. You can. You can and you should. Because Jesus is really coming back. The fourth thing you will be able to do if you believe that Jesus is really coming back is you will be able to keep working hard. I've learned that uh, rewards are important with my kids. Um, I think I've told you before how we, we do rewards. You know, we have toys, we have, we have uh, food and things like that. Well, I have a dream that one day in my home, I will not have to do any chores and that my kids will do all of them. That is my dream. <laughs> and, and so uh, people tell me that as the kids get older, they can, they can help out with these things. So in my opinion, the sooner it comes, the better. And, uh, and so what I've done in an attempt to motivate them is that I've started to pay our kids for various chores. Cleaning the table is 25 cents. Washing the table is 25 cents. Taking out the trash, 10 cents. Um, and uh, loading the dishwasher was a full dollar. And, uh, and so, you know, so uh, this worked for about two chores, um, just so you know. <laughs> and, and so what I did is I doubled their pay. Loading the dishwasher is now a full $2 at, at our house. Um, and that worked for about one day. Uh, so I've decided to make the chores mandatory. <laughs> and, uh, but, but, but still with pay. And so uh, here's, here's what's different, though. If they do their chores quickly enough, if they don't do their chores quickly enough, then they lose their pay. And so I found that the reward was not good enough to get them motivated to want to do their chores. But if the chores were mandatory, it kept them, kept them moving um, in order to get the reward. Everyone needs motivation to keep working hard. Part of our motivations as Christians is gratitude. You know, we're grateful to God for what he's done for us. And so we want to give back to him. But God has also given us motivation in the form of a reward. A reward that we will receive in heaven. God offers us a reward for doing the things that he's asked us to do. If you keep working hard, you will receive a reward. And God has asked us to keep working hard in two areas, sin and service. Sin. God has asked us to work hard at removing sin from our lives. He wants us to pursue righteousness. He wants us to pursue purity. He wants us to make, make us into shining beacons of what it is like to live the right way. He wants us to be free from the slavery of, uh, of our bad habits. God has also, also asked us to work hard at serving in the kingdom of God. And you're not just supposed to go to work and uh, earn your money and go home. You know, you're supposed to work and earn your money and talk about your faith with the people around you. You're not just supposed to raise your children to mind their manners and be polite. You're supposed to raise your children to mind their manners and be polite and to follow godly values. He has given you lots of things to work on and to look forward to. And he's called you to work for healing and wholeness in the lives of people around you. You have a job to do. How well you do your job matters. 
how faithful you are to obeying God, it matters. We often talk about how we get into heaven on the basis of our, our faith in Christ, our commitment to Christ. And that is true. His sacrifice on the cross for us, that is the basis for our entry into heaven. It's not dependent on our works. But get this. Your reward is dependent on your works. How well you follow God's direction in your life determines how big your reward is. When Jesus returns, you won't just find relief. You won't just get a party. You will be getting a reward for your work. Jesus will be bringing it with him. In Revelations 22, it says this. Look, Jesus is talking about his return. He said, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. If you believe that Jesus is coming back and that he's bringing his reward with him, you, if you, you will be able to live and keep working hard. Here's why. When Jesus comes back, he's not just going to be rewarding the Mother Teresas and the Billy Grahams of our world. He's going to be rewarding the no-names among us. I mentioned Hudson Taylor earlier. He's an example of someone who did really incredible things. But sometimes I wonder about all those Hudson Taylors who, who, did, who did incredible things but never got credit for it because you know, their, their work was you know, on a smaller scale or it was more remote and people just didn't hear about it. Maybe they didn't plan 100 churches. Maybe they just planted two. But their sacrifice and their life of service was no less remarkable. I think about these guys. I know they're out there. I think about the addicts who labor to overcome their addictions. They will get a reward for their hard work. Everyone who has worked hard for the kingdom of God will get recognized, and they will get credit for the things they did in secret. They will get a reward that matches the sacrifice and the investment they made into the kingdom of God. And there will be many there on that day who will be rewarded with much because of their stellar obedience and their unwavering service. And there will be many who we would expect to get a large reward, and their reward will be very small. And Jesus explains, many who are last now will be first, and many who are first now will be last. God knows everything you've done. You will get credit for every little battle you've faced and for every little cup of water you've given in his name. God will one day put your remarkable service on the jumbotron of heaven, and he will thank you personally. So don't be found wanting. Don't be found lazy. Don't be found caught up in the things of this world. Keep working hard at the task that God has given you. When Jesus comes back, will you be found wanting? When I look back on my life, I can see a two-year period where... um, I just, I just was not connecting with God as much as I should have been. I'm not sure quite how it happened. You know, I just wasn't praying very much, wasn't reading my Bible very much. And I was still going to church, still serving. Um, but I wasn't going to God for direction on a regular basis. And uh, I wasn't asking God, you know, how do you want me to change? How, how do you, what do you want me to, to do? Oh, I didn't care about sharing my faith as much. And the best way I can describe that period of my life is that I was just caught up in the things of life. And I grieved those two years. Wasted time. If Jesus would have come back during those two years, I would have been ashamed. I would have been disappointed in myself. I would not have been ready. And I have a list of questions that I uh, regularly ask myself to give myself a spiritual checkup now. 
and uh, checks the, the condition of my heart before God. And one of the questions I ask myself is to imagine that the ground started shaking, and there's this, lo- this loud trumpet sound outside, and the, the sky is just being ripped open, and Jesus is coming down on his chariot. And I ask myself, would I be disappointed, and would I be ready? And I search my heart. I ask myself honestly. I look at, my, I look at myself, and I say, would I be ready? And I tell you, about two years ago, I asked myself that question, and I knew, I just knew that if Jesus came back that day, I would not be ready. And he would be asking me why I wasn't sharing my faith more with the people around me. I wanted to share my faith with my friends, but I just wasn't doing it. And so I started making some changes, and I started pushing myself to be bolder and take more risks. And I tell you, it was the realization of Christ's return that it could happen any time that pushed me to keep working hard at the task of, of sharing about God with people who don't have a relationship with him. If you live every day with the reality of his return on your mind, you will be able to keep working, ta- working hard at the tasks that he has given you. You can. You can and you must because Jesus is coming back. The promise of Christ's return has been something that men and women of God have used as their beacon of hope, their motivation to stay focused on the goal, to keep working hard. Their lives are the stuff of history books and memoirs. If you want to be like them, you're going to need to get your eyes off the things of this world for a moment and and to look to the future, to the return of Christ and the eternity that he is going to bring. I recognize that I've just spent a lot of time talking about a promise that you already know. You know that Jesus has promised to come back. Everybody knows that. That's not the question. The question is, are you living it? Are you living the promise? You can be the person God designed you to be if you are living every day, waiting, hoping, ready, knowing that at any any moment, the foundations of the world could begin to shake, the sky could be ripped open, and Jesus would be at your doorstep. Get ready. I want you to go ahead and stand.